Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 22 of the podcast. This is M, and I'm repeating myself because I did the whole intro thinking I was recording, and then I realized I wasn't. So I'm about to repeat myself, but uh, you can subscribe to the podcast if you don't already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, um, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. And uh, I want to be more forceful or forceful or forcible about asking you to politely rate and review the show if you can. If you've been listening and you like the show, do me a solid take five minutes and rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, that could help us reach new people. And uh, if you happen to leave a particularly good review, or hell, even a scathing review, I might read it on the show. So um, thanks for taking the time to do that. If you want to connect with the show, uh, you can at this is M Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, you'll actually be one of the first because uh, not a lot of followers at this point. But hey, let's grow it, man. Let's look back on a year and see uh, see how we've developed. Otherwise, uh, if you want to connect with me personally, you can at this is M X O X O. And please uh, look up my artist name M, the heir apparent. That's the letter M, the H E I R apparent on Spotify and stream my playlist of new original music from 2019 called Gentleman Caller. It's featured on my profile. Give it a spin. That's the playlist Gentleman Caller for M, the heir apparent on Spotify. Oh, man. Hey, my buddy started the podcast. Uh, He's a comedian from L.A. named Aaron Michael Marsh, and he has a podcast called Putting Up with Aaron Michael Marsh now uh, on Stitcher and should be in Apple and Spotify pretty soon. Um, If you've been listening to this podcast since day one, you've heard of Aaron uh, he features prominently in the episode about Adam Duritz's hair. I think it was episode one of the podcast, right after the pilot, the curious case of Adam Duritz's hair. So, um, check out his podcast. Um, I feel like podcasts popping up all around me, you know, when me and my brother were growing up, I always felt like we were kind of into our own thing. Uh, I even mentioned on one of the last episodes being a big fan of Phoenix and Kings of Leon and thinking I was experiencing them in isolation, not realizing that they were kind of blowing up around me. Uh, the 1975 is an example of that. When I f- fell into them, well, one, they're targeted at teenage girls, so uh, I'm definitely outside of their demo anyway. But when I became a huge fan of the 1975, I didn't know anybody who listened to them. And then within a couple years, they were huge in the United States. Um, but... Uh, so I always think I'm doing something that nobody else is doing. And now I, I feel like podcasts are popping up all around me. And I think I was listening to like the Joe Rogan podcast or something. But I think at the start of 2020, there's now like almost, uh, I don't know, was it like 900 million podcasts or some shit like that? I don't know what it was, but it's some insane amount of podcasts and more people are, st- more people are starting, starting podcasts now more than ever or something like that. Um, so, you know, I thought as a musician, I was kind of doing something different because I was seeing a lot of comedians doing it and it was doing a lot for them. But, uh, who knows, man, maybe by this time next year, podcasting will be the new Instagramming. It's not enough to just post your images on Instagram or have a Facebook account. Like everyone's just going to have their own show. I mean, I think I thought people, I think people thought that was what YouTube was going to be. 
Like everybody was just going to have their own television show. Um, and is that true? I don't know. Um, but maybe podcasting is the new that. Boy. But yeah, check out Aaron Michael Marsh's podcast, Putting Up with Aaron Michael Marsh. Um, super funny guy. And uh, that's going to be a great show. And, you know, I messaged him about it. I saw him post about it on his Instagram story today. And so I just messaged him and said, hey, man, this is awesome. This could be huge for you. This is really cool. And he was like, oh, when you're down in L.A., you should be a guest. I would love to do that. But it also made me think about this show. Um, I know some other people who've had podcasts for a while. I actually, one of my songs, Be Free, is the theme song for a podcast called The Midlife Mixtape on uh, uh, probably everywhere you find podcasts. But Nancy, the host of that show, I think she's, I forget where she saw me play, but she saw me perform somewhere. I think it was a house concert. I can't remember where it was, but um, I, I don't know. I had no context I remember when she messaged me. I couldn't remember where, where she had found my music. But anyway, she said she wanted to use one of my songs for her podcast. And um, it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, I didn't realize kind of the audience that she had. She did like a live podcast where she had me come play live. And it was pretty well attended in San Francisco. I was p- pretty surprised. And then when I was on tour with Matt Nathanson uh, last year, probably around this time last year, um, I played in L.A. and someone came up to me. My opening song is Be Free. And she comes up to me after the set and goes, oh, I thought I recognized that song. I listened to the Midlife Mixtape podcast. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, so that was pretty cool. But the point of all that is, um, as I'm doing this, I'm trying to think of ways to promote the show. And one of the easiest ways to promote it is to probably get on other people's podcasts. But the problem with that is guesting on other people's shows is usually a system of favor trading. Um you know, whereby they introduce you to their audience and you introduce them to yours. But I have no plans to have guests on this show. Um, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where I would make an exception. I mean, I don't know. I guess if, I don't know, I guess if somebody cool really wanted to be on the show, I might have them, but I don't know. I did that whole thing. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this actually, but I actually had a podcast years ago. Um, When I first started playing music in the Bay Area, I very quickly realized or was acutely aware that, you know, when you step out into a music community, you see who the cool players are. You see the people who are kind of making moves and stuff. And, um, you know, I kind of made the same mistakes that everybody does. You know, I find someone I like and I just sort of email them and ask them, hey man, if you ever need someone to open up for you, I hope you consider me. And um, when you actually kind of move up the ranks yourself, you realize how ineffectual that is. But at the time, you just think, man, I'm not really hearing back from people. Nothing I'm doing is really working. And I sort of lighted on the idea of, oh, well, in order for people to, um, I guess, apropos of nothing, in order for people to sort of open them or make themselves available to you, you have to offer them something. And so I don't know why I thought I'd be good at it, but I thought, oh, I'll start a podcast where I interview artists. Because even though the people I was trying to contact were more established in the local scene, you know, a lot of them hadn't had a lot of press before. Um, And they certainly didn't have the kind of stuff that I was interested in making, like these sort of long form interviews. So I started this podcast called Shut Up Songwriters. And um, the premise of the name was basically me and my buddy Tom would go out to these open mics and we were sort of upset that, you know, audiences wouldn't be quiet. So I thought, um, 
I thought uh, it'd be nice to have this space where you get someone's you get undivided attention for an hour. Uh, I think the, be- the you know our favorite audiences were playing the more intimate shows, the house concerts. Where I mean, as a songwriter, you spend so much time on the material. It kind of sucks when you play it live and you feel like it's not really getting heard. But when you do have the rare opportunity to play a house concert or a smaller venue, and you really have that undivided attention, you know, um, those can be some of the most rewarding performances. They're actually the most uncomfortable in some ways, too. I mean, some people think that the most nervous you'll ever be is when, you, is when you're playing for the biggest audience you've ever played for. And that might be true before the show, no doubt about it. But when you're actually on stage, the most nervous I've ever been is in front of the most intimate audiences. Because when you're on a big stage, you're kind of, I don't know, when it's dark, you can't see the audience, there's a huge sound system, you're, it like really supports you. And the fact that it's dark in the theater or whatever, you usually can't see most of the audience. So you kind of acclimate very quickly. But when you play a smaller space, whether it's like a house show or um, this venue, The Lost Church in San Francisco that I played at a bunch, you know, you see everybody and they're right there. And it's a little more challenging to get lost in the performance because you're hyper conscious, not, not just of yourself, because you see every single pair of eyes looking at you. Um, you see every movement that they make. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it can feel vulnerable, but still, still some of the most rewarding performances that you have. And so I wanted to create this space where I could just like, um, talk to people for an hour. And, um, it was something I enjoyed doing. It was, uh, you know, I, that was what taught me that, you know, in order to ingratiate yourself with people, you really have to have something to offer them. And so, um, you know, it just got me in touch with people who probably, Never would have answered my emails otherwise. And uh, actually, you know, I created some good friendships too. But that being said, so anyway, just to put a, a, a point on it though, I, I think what I'm saying is is one way to promote this podcast would certainly be to do other people's podcasts. But without having a space to um, reciprocate, I'm not quite sure the response I would get. But, um, but uh, and as I'm sort of closing that thought I forgot where I was going to jump off to but yeah the hard part about doing the the songwriters podcast though was coordinating with artists you know if you've ever tried to work with creative people a lot of times it can feel like corralling cats and you know if I had to do it all over again I'd probably do it differently but I think I was a little I don't know I guess I thought because I felt like people were being so I thought you know i thought that they were doing me a favor by being there when really I should have looked at it the other way around. Like, Hey, I'm doing them a favor. I'm the one who's, you know, making this space for them and giving them this platform and creating this, you know, whether or not the show had a huge audience, I was still creating this piece of content, uh, that would live on the internet forever. You know, it would, for most of them it was the first long form interview they've ever done. Plus I would do these live performance videos, which have sort of just marinated on the internet for years now. And some of them have done really well. And I've even noticed since then that some people use those videos as like their promotional material. And I made no money from this, you know? So I really, at the time, I really should have understood that I was really offering something of value to them. But I would usually send each artist like uh, my first edit of the episode. 
And I swear to God, I, I mean, I became kind of resentful very quickly. I mean, the amount of edits that people would ask for, um, when really I just should have published it as is and let, and let them live with the consequences if they didn't like how it turned out. And usually I, I noticed too that when you're sitting across from artists, and, and to be fair, it could be a lot of them were doing interviews for the first time, but it is really disappointing for me to realize that many people don't really have a lot to say about themselves. Um, and maybe that's why people gravitate towards songwriting or something, but, you know, as someone who's always felt like they had a lot to say, I was just always disappointed when you're sitting across from someone and you just say, oh, well, tell me about your childhood. And they're like, oh, I grew up in New Jersey. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. And that's basically all they have. Um, um, And that's just challenging. You know, when you really feel like uh, you have to get on the treadmill and basically work for this interview to to push forward. Um, But, uh, but, 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 uh. yeah, I'm not really sure where I was going with all that, but, um, Yeah, I don't know. Doing uh, doing my friend Aaron's podcast, not really having a place to reciprocate. I don't know. There was something about, uh, I was just thinking though, I, I think on the last episode we were talking about per- perfectionism or um, there's a few thoughts here. One, I spoke with my brother recently after the last episode and, um, you know, I don't want to be <clears throat> accused of nepotism, but I got to be honest with you. My brother is number one in the running for my consideration for MVP of the podcast for next year. Uh, he listens to every episode. He has good insight. He has good feedback. And, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, he'd probably be uh, first in the running, um, even if it was like a blind taste test. So, yeah, ne- nepotism, I really don't think so. I think uh, I think his performance as a supporter of this podcast stands on its own. And uh, I challenge any of you to defy uh, that. Um, show your support. Rate and review the show. Share it with your friends, et cetera, et cetera. But otherwise, he's certainly um, number one in my book right now for being considered for MVP of 2020. Now, it's a long year, so a lot could happen. But right now, he's a strong contender. Um, but he and I were speaking after, after the last episode. And I don't always ask him, but uh, he said he had been listening. He enjoys it. It's part of his Monday ritual, and I hope it's part of yours also. And I just said, oh, do you have any feedback? And um, one of the things he said was... Uh, I think about a year ago, my girlfriend and I had visited him um, in the city that he lives with his now fiance. And he gave me this book that he had read. And I can't remember if his girlfriend had read it and found it and read it first and then passed it off to him. But it's a book called Too Perfect. And I'm looking around for it and I realize it's at my girlfriend's place. But it's basically about perfectionism. And I've always considered myself a perfectionist. And for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking about Michael Jackson, <laughs> which sounds crazy, except I remember years ago when I was like obsessed with him, he did this interview with Oprah. And they're sitting on the edge of the stage that he has in his house, his own private performance stage or whatever. And uh, he was talking about how he's a perfectionist. And that always kind of stuck with me. And I think the conventional wisdom is kind of coming around to this, but until recently you know, perfection, perfectionism has always been seen as a virtue and it's a sign of meticulousness and it's something to aspire to. Um, and I think people get misled because obviously it has the word perfect in it. So if you're, you're a perfectionist, 
you're sort of aspiring to perfection, which seems to be noble. But I've always experienced it as a personality trait. Um, because I think what comes along with being a perfectionist is that nothing's ever good enough. And because nothing's ever good enough, um, it, it doesn't always follow that you um, work hard until you're satisfied. I think um, the nasty little secret of perfectionism is that it actually hinders your productivity because if what you're shooting for is perfection, if what you see in your mind is perfection and what you will accept is nothing less than perfection that's a tall order and probably more than anything it it deters people from even beginning to do something that they want to execute perfectly if the standard for success is so high and anything short of that is a complete failure most people don't try and so uh it's something i've struggled with i mean I think on the episode 13 book of changes, I talk about this. I mean, this podcast itself, I mean, I'm incredibly happy with how it's going. I'm incredibly happy how consistent it's been. Uh, you know, I haven't missed a week. I've put in the work. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And has it always been perfect? No. Um, but I think it's been consistently good and I'm really happy with it. I've said it's the best part of my week and uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. Um, but it's still, you know, I, you know, I talk about when I was getting into the I Ching, I had this sort of inspiration to do something for this creative project. And I, I don't feel comfortable talking about it, but, um, needless to say, I haven't done it. And, uh, even though, uh, I'm happy to be doing the podcast, it's still not quite what I, what I wish I had the courage and the motivation to do. And I think the reason that this other project has been hard for me to start is because um, it just feels so huge. And uh, it just means so much to me that if I can't do it well or perfectly, if I, if I can't do it how I've imagined it in my head, I feel like it's not worth doing at all. You know, like I, I'd, be, I'd be squandering an opportunity. And so literally for the last four maybe four or five years now this has been a creative vision and project that i've i've literally thought almost exclusively about for the last four or five years and you know i've outlined parts of it i i've certainly thought about it a lot but i just can't commit to it and it's because i have this vision of what it should be and i feel so far from that that it's like i can't even bring myself to begin um so that I mean that's the example of how perfection perfectionism inhibits productivity rather than uh helps it that I sort of live with right now. But I think, you know, if you consider yourself a, a perfectionist, uh, like me, I'm sure you have a litany of other things that you felt have had, have held you back. You know, I mean, I look at my life right now having returned to school and I mean, I was talking about this with my girlfriend. I said, you know, if I, I just wish I was the, you know, the student I am now, the sort of effortless, get it done, manage my time well, show up to class, um, engage, you know, it, it, because it comes so naturally now as an, as a, as a full fledged adult, I just think, damn, if I just had this when I was younger, like I just be, I would be in such a radically different place in my life, you know? And I think part of it is just biology. You know, I mean, I feel it when I'm around younger kids at school now. I mean, there's just, 
something else in the room. And a lot of it is the drugs of their hormones and their brains and their development and their social lives. And, you know, school is just a part of a prism of other experiences that they're dealing with at the same time. And, and when you're an adult, then you have a clear sense of what you want out of school. And, and, and frankly, you know, I don't say this patronizingly, but what the, quote, real world is like um, and the and the part that school plays in it and being a successful student plays in that, you know, your, your values are different, so it's easier. Um, but um, I, I just know, you know, I felt so far from perfect when I was younger, it really kept me from being a productive student. Um, and I mentioned previously that I've gotten into, dr- into drumming again recently. And literally before I was recording this podcast, I just practiced for like an hour and a half. You know, I had this book, Stick Control, and a practice pad, and some and some drumsticks, and a metronome, and I just lose myself. You know, the time just flies by. And what's so exciting is every day, like, I literally tell myself, okay, I'm trying to bring these ideas of school and drumming together. So, when I'm working, when I, when, even when I crack open this book, Stick Control, and I'm starting to work through the, the exercises. The sticks feel so strange in my hands. You know, I drummed for years. I haven't for maybe a decade, but I drummed a lot. And there was a part of me that thought, well, once I get sticks in my hands, it'll kind of come back naturally. And, you know, I was, I mean, the first day I got the pad, I probably practiced like four hours. But overall, I'll practice like an hour, maybe two a day. And for the first few days, it was, yeah, it was kind of difficult, you know? It just didn't feel natural. But because I've been working on it diligently and I've been tolerating, and this is the key word here, because I've been tolerating not doing well, and instead of telling myself, wow, you suck. Wow, look how far you are from where you want to be. Wow, you can only play this episode like crappily at this speed. Imagine how far you are from where you want to be. You know, if that was my self-talk, I would have stopped a long time ago. But what I've started to tell myself is things like, wow, this is really difficult right now. I don't have this yet. Or this is challenging for me right now. I better keep chipping away at it. You know, and when you when you adopt that type of mentality, you start to make progress. And just in the last two days especially, you know, I've taken these first three or four pages of exercises. I've worked them a lot at different speeds. I've set realistic goals for myself for each day. I've broken it down into manageable chunks. Um, and I really just kind of trusted my body when I, when I feel that my arms are exhausted and that I'm not being productive anymore, I stop and maybe I come back to it later in the day or something like that. And because I've just broken it down into these manageable chunks, I'm making progress. And, you know, of course there's a part of me in my head. I'm already like looking up drum sets on YouTube and thinking about what drums are for me and what symbols I want to buy. But, you know, in terms of what I'm actually doing with my time and how I'm talking to myself and, and what I'm doing, I'm really limiting it to just a, a practice pad and a pair of sticks and this workbook. Do you know what I mean? And a metronome. But very simple. And just tolerating, almost committing to where I'm at right now with this. I have what I have and I'm doing what I can with what I have. Um, school's the same way. You know, for, well, I think most people feel this way, but to go back to school at 34, well, I don't want to oversell it. I was about to say that going back to school at 34 can be, you can feel very insecure. 
is that actually how I feel? I, I don't know that I feel that way. And I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes I, I feel kind of clueless because even when I'm hanging out with these kids, I don't really feel like an outsider. There's certainly moments where I do, where I'll try to engage with them a little more casually. And then I realize I look like the old guy who's trying to be cool. So then I fucking like retreat back. <laughs> you know, I, I set that boundary back up, but maybe I'm so, so maybe I'm just clueless. But for the most part, I feel pretty comfortable being around these young people. You know, I don't feel too othered. You know, if, if another decade goes by, then I'd, I'd probably feel that. But, um, but, um, but it is true that going back to school at an, at an older age can be vulnerable. But I think where it feels vulnerable is not, not the social aspect, but, you know, you're charting a course that other people are, are, are doing at the same time when they're much younger than you. And, um, and, uh, there's just, there's a lot of, like I said, um, I don't know. I'm trying not to use the word regret, but you know, when I think about what I'm able to bring to practicing when it comes to the drums, when I think about what I'm able to bring to being a student, I just wish, God damn, if I just had this when I was younger and some people do, I mean, I'm certainly surrounded by a lot of young people who definitely don't have that. And I sympathize because I feel like I've been there too. But to also see yourself having to have spent a decade or more cultivating or developing a skill set or personality trait or even work ethic that some people just already have at 19, 20, 21, it really makes you feel like you're playing injured. You know what I mean? It really makes you feel like you're handicapped in some way. Um, but, you know, coming back for the semester, I had forgotten what it felt like to be in a lecture, especially something like math um, or chemistry, and to being being presented with a topic for the first time, that you think, "Wow, I feel I feel it acutely in my chest." Where I'm like, "Oh God, this is like this is de- like I really don't understand this." And the teacher's like doing some chemical equation or whatever on the board, and you're thinking, "Wow, this is like really difficult." And in the moment, it's you know anxiety is probably heavy-handed but you know i just i feel something i'm holding some type of tension in my body and i'm frustrated and i'm thinking damn like i'm smart like why don't i get this and god if this is a challenge for me maybe the rest of the semester maybe it's just you know the pressure i was scared is i'm starting to feel it and man i'm gonna have to work so hard outside of class to like understand this but you know if i just take a take a moment and just change the way I'm talking to myself. And, and instead of thinking like, oh God, this is so complicated. I'm struggling with this. God, I'm so stupid. Like, oh, if I was smart, I would understand this. If I just say, oh, this is challenging for me right now. Or I don't understand this yet. But I'm sure I'm just going to take good notes. I'm going to do the, you know, whatever the reading for the homework is. I'm going to work through whatever problem sets this person is assigning. And sure as shit, if I just do that, eventually I look up and I understand it. You know, and it doesn't take more than just doing the work. You know, I mean, when it comes to like sitting down and doing my homework, I think I'm like most people. The hard part is starting. You know, I felt this way with running. And by the way, your boy has not been running. <laughs> I literally, you know, I ran the half marathon. I ran for a couple weeks after that. And I, I literally, I have not run in like two months. And... um Strangely, in the last couple of weeks, I feel less conflicted about it. Maybe because I'm feeling so productive with drumming and school has started and I've been doing really well with school. So, 
you know, some of my, my feeling of, of not being productive is, is occupied with that, but especially over the winter, it really bothered me. Um, but I'm still hoping to get back into it. But, um, but, uh, yeah, what am I talking about? I don't know. Something about just tolerating the not knowing for the time being. Oh, I was saying starting is the most difficult part. And it's, you know, I felt this when I was running, I, when I worked at a racket club and they had a gym, I would, I would notice this in myself too, is like, you know, the hardest part before a workout is just lacing up your shoes and getting out there. Once you're actually out there or you're up on the treadmill or you're in the library doing your homework, it's easy. And you think, man, why did I struggle? Why did I fight myself so hard to actually do this? Um, but, uh, just, just committing to the process. And as I'm getting into this, you know, when I asked my, when I solicited my brother's criticism, he said, well, you've returned to a couple, a couple topics, a couple of times. I, I know this is like one of the greatest hits, um, uh, subjects on the podcast, but just committing to the process. You know, I've said other times as well, this show can be a bit of a theme and variations thing. Sometimes we say we state a theme and then the rest of the episode or even multiple episodes or movements in this great symphonic, uh, the symphonic structure of this podcast. You know, there are recurring themes, of course. Um, but something about just committing to the process. And I don't know if it's age. I don't know if it's therapy. I don't know if it's sobriety. I don't know what it is. Being in a healthy relationship. Um, probably all those things put together, honestly, but there's something, um, about where I'm at, where I'm at in my life right now that I'm relieved to see the ease that I've committed to the process. And, you know, as much as I, you know, I still think about this big creative project that I have in mind and as far away as that still feels, I'm really comfortable with where I'm at with the podcast. I'm glad that I'm doing it consistently. Um, and um, it's fulfilling. And I think I'm just trying to let that be enough. I, I thought about this in terms of relationships. I mean, I think about it, about it in terms of my life in general, but I th- what I worry is that, you know, I look at my life and there's really nothing to complain about. You know, I live comfortably. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can get an education. I have a good job. Um, I really don't want for anything financially. Uh, I have a great relationship with someone who's phenomenal. And yet, I go about my life and I feel unhappy. And, you know, it's when I, the, when I actually live my life, I think a lot of existential things. Like I think, oh, well, maybe this is just the riddle of human experience and blah, blah, blah. And how much can anyone really know anybody else? And maybe it's man's destiny to feel alone, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to bring it back to this book that my brother gave me, one thing I've been saying in therapy a lot um, is I think I do it to myself. You know, every time I thought something was going to make me happy, it never did. You know, when I thought, um, oh, when I start getting on stage and performing, that's going to make me happy. And I'm not saying that those weren't accomplishments, and I'm not saying they never made me happy, but they didn't, they didn't instill me with that sort of abiding sense of contentment that I was really looking for, that calm, you know, whatever that thing in my life that I've been holding for the whole time that's been causing me pain, I thought these separate things would take that away, and it never did. 
you know, they were accomplishments in their own right. And there was some pleasure in the moment, but even then there's something else I've been living with and sitting with. That's kind of, it's been like the thief of joy in my life. Do you know what I mean? This, um, doppelganger, this, uh, evil twin to my side. who's just sort of like spoiled every good thing that's ever happened to me. You know, that's always told me, eh, it could have been better. I mean, we used the example about my grades last semester. When I had the A's in the other classes already, I was, I was telling myself that I was getting away with them. And then when I said, oh, when I get an A in chemistry, I'm going to really feel like I've earned it because that was a challenging course. And then I get an A in chemistry and my first thought is, ah, uh, he probably graded on a curve. You know, there was already someone who's just, eh, the thief of joy, just waiting, laying in wait to, you know, as soon as joy poked its head up, it fucking just pokes it in the eye. Do you know what I'm saying? The thief of joy in my life, man. And whether it was performing, you know, uh, playing certain venues, touring with a certain artist, uh, getting certain grades in class, uh, it just, this thief of joy has always just sort of popped up and, and, and just, uh, squandered the experience for me. Um, I guess I've always been afraid that I'll live with that for the rest of my life. But, you know, as I look back and I've, you know, you pretty much see yourself accomplishing everything you wanted in life. You know, whether it's a good relationship, it's going back to school and getting good grades, whatever it is, I realize I'm kind of the only person standing in my own way. And that's sort of a challenging thing to confront because... On the one hand, you know, if you are a perfectionist, that thief of joy is always telling you that what you're doing is not good enough when really it is. So for me, if I sound confused, it's because I am, because this is what I come back to in therapy all the time. My therapist always says, you know, part of what I'm working toward or what we're working toward is just letting the, letting it, letting things be enough, you know, and that I'm always coming back, you know, I always come back to this belief somehow that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, you know, that the things I do are not good enough or, um, yeah, I just live with this abiding sense that something's wrong with me. There's something fundamentally broken about me. And so, that needs to change. But on the other hand, when everything in my life is going well and I still feel unhappy and there's absolutely nothing external that I can point to that should make me feel that way, I feel like, well, I'm the only person standing in my own way. And that feels true. So how can I both... <laughs> you know, then I feel like, oh, well, I've alighted on what exactly what's wrong with me. So I feel like I'm right. I mean, I think this is the hard part. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes your kryptonite, your greatest enemy, the thief of joy, whatever it is in your life, the thing that is inhibiting you the most, the thing that is causing you the most suffering, the thing that is keeping you from the brass ring that you're reaching for, this enemy. You experience it like a virtue. 
you cherish it, not knowing that it's the thing that's keeping you from what you want. You think it's helping you. You know, when you're a perfectionist, you think your meticulousness, you think your, um, you know, the high hopes you set for yourself or the high goals you, you reach for or the standards you keep that you see are absent in other people, the thoughtfulness, the whatever it is, the meticulousness, the, you know, the, you know, you think you're being hard on yourself is good. You want it for other people. You wish other people had more of the same thing. You see the shortcomings in other people and you want for them what you already have in spades for yourself. And it could be the case that, you know, maybe it is the case that when you're meticulous or hardworking, you do accomplish good things. But there's a counterintuitive way of thinking, which is, well, maybe you're accomplishing those things in spite of yourself. You know, you're attributing all your successes to this perfectionist quality in yourself. But what if, what if the real, what if the real Jedi perspective is think of what you would accomplish if you were just nicer to yourself, if you were more accommodating of yourself, if you were more accommodating of your imperfections. You know, I was talking to my girlfriend about this, I guess this misunderstanding I have in psychology now is, you know, in both semesters, we've talked about different types of experiments, and one of them is classical conditioning. And I'm not going to bore you with it, but we were just sort of debating over the, you know, the definitions of, you know, there's reinforcement and punishment in classical conditioning experiments. And there's either positive or negative reinforcement, and there's positive and negative punishment. And we were going back and forth about that, but we were talking about in these behavioral studies, you know, a lot of parents who are hard and they discipline their kids is they think that, you know, they say spare the, what is it? Uh, spare the rod, spoil the child or something like that. You know, people who are heavy, heavy disciplinarians think that that is what keeps people in line. But I think, I think, I think, I think, I don't know. This is anecdotal. I've, I've heard that in actual fact, when they look at the evidence in behavioral conditioning studies, what actually is most effective is positive reinforcement. You know, rewarding people for the for the for the good the good things that they do, not punishing for the things that you don't want them to do. Now, is that true? I don't know. I can't point to a single study. I it's just anecdotal. And of course, you know, we hear that stuff and we just sort of smile and nod at it. Um, but if it is true, that that there's some pretty powerful implications, you know, like I treat my, because I didn't have a lot of structure growing up because I felt responsible for myself. I thought if I'm going to get anything done, I have to ride my own ass. Do you know what I mean? I have to create my own structure. And while that may have been true, I've kind of treated myself like a drill sergeant, you know? And even though that may have, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that always motivated me, but maybe I was too hard on myself. You know, maybe there were times where I had some clarity, you know, and I was able to accomplish things, whether it was getting on stage or forcing myself to go out and meet people um, or getting back to school or, or whatever it is. But maybe I actually would have come a lot closer to those things sooner if I had just been nicer to myself. If I, and you know, when I go back to drumming, when I go back to being a student, if I was just hard on myself in all those moments, like when I'm practicing now, and I'm doing some sort of stick control speed exercise, and I'm at a speed that's very difficult, 
and I'm actually just noticing this because I'm actually focusing on my technique for the first time. Like I feel like from day one, I'm going to focus on technique and everything is going to come from technique, you know? When I'm feeling tension, when I feel like I'm at the fringe of my ability, I make progress when I relax. You know, you can't play faster when you tense up. You literally have to practice to where there's no tension in your hands. And yeah, it can feel wobbly and weird at first, but it's that relaxed state that actually will allow you to go faster. You know, you're going to start making these, when you give yourself that freedom to just relax, your hands start actually making those little micro changes that need to happen for stability. And when you're playing at a faster speed and you find you're not doing well, just relax. Actually relax your hands and you find, oh, actually, I can play at this speed. I just need to let go of the tension in my arms. Sometimes I feel it, even my hands are relaxed, but I feel tension building up in my right leg for some reason. My heel will come up and I'm struggling. And then I just realize, oh, just relax your right leg, ground yourself and just keep playing. And I find I'm, I'm in it. I, I can play this fast. You know what I'm saying? And all the time when it just feels like it's just getting a little hairy or the cart starts to shake... You know, I talk about this experience about being on stages. Sometimes you step out and you start playing, and the minute you become self-conscious, the cart of the roller coaster or whatever you're riding, the, of the ride starts to shake, you know? But when I'm playing, if I just take a deep breath and relax, I realize, oh, I, I've actually got this. And over the last couple of weeks alone, I've just, I mean, I'm kind of much further along with this book than I thought I would be when I started. Do you know what I'm saying? And I attribute it to being good to myself. You know, when I find those moments where I'm struggling against a goal or I'm I'm feeling like it's not working, instead of telling myself um, that I'm not good enough, that I suck, I just relax and let it be what it is. You know, I I sort of try to be content with where I'm at. And um, I mean, in a weird way, I felt this with my girlfriend recently. I was over at her place last night. We were making dinner. And... I always enjoy time with her, but for some reason I enjoyed last night especially. I actually ended up going home in the middle of the night because I felt sick. But um, but before that, we were like making dinner. And I don't know. We were just having, I don't know. We were just having fun. Do you know what I mean? And maybe it was something that came up in therapy earlier. Maybe it's the drumming. Maybe it's some of these takeaways or things that I've been thinking about. But just, you know, just be enjoying where we're at. You know, hey, tonight we're making dinner and we're watching The Good Place, which we both think kind of sucks. But, you know, we're just going to enjoy tonight, you know, and it's going to be what it is. And there was just something about not, you know, not thinking about the future of our relationship, not thinking about, you know, whether or not we're going to be moving in with each other. You know, just enjoying the time right now. Um, It was especially nice. And so, you know, I'm not pretending I'm a sage. I'm not pretending that I won't forget about this this time tomorrow. Um, but uh, that's kind of what I've been living with for this week, trying to fight the perfectionism. And it was sort of, you know, my brother was like, I mean, the whole reason this came up is because I've had this book for like a year. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure if I was <laughs> fucking clear about this, but my brother gave me the book when we were visiting about a year ago. And every once in a while, he'll check in with me and say, hey, are you reading the book? And I'm like, nah. But he said, uh, after the last episode, he's like, hey, have you been reading that book? And I was like, no. And he was like, oh, because it kind of sounds like you are. At least some of the topics that have come up on this podcast um, sound like some of the takeaways that he had gotten from this book. And so I felt, hmm, 
you know, maybe it's a sign from the cosmos. Maybe I will read it. And um, I cautioned him that I've been having, you know, once the school semester starts, I have trouble reading anything. I just sort of focus on on my schoolwork. But I said, you know what? I'll take it over to my girlfriend's place and I'll read a couple pages every night. And so I literally get in bed with my girlfriend and before we watch TV, either, you know, The Good Place or The Office or some shit, Cheer or whatever show we're watching, uh, we happen to be watching at the time, the last couple nights I've just read four pages from the book. And we sort of talk about it together because I don't think my girlfriend suffers in this way that I do. I think, you know, I think anything is a spectrum. Like for some reason, she and I talk about hoarding a lot, you know, like I think some members of her family may have hoarding qualities. Um, um, but we talk about it as just that, like people say all the time, like, Oh, I'm a, Oh, I'm such a hoarder. And it's like, well, you may have, you may have hoarding qualities, but you're not a hoarder. And it actually made me look at the DSM-4. Do you guys know what that is? If you don't know, just Google it. We don't need to go into it. But um, the DSM-4 is basically just a, I was going to say a diagnostic manual. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, it's a diagnostic manual for like um, mental health disorders and stuff like that. That's, that psychiatrists use. It basically outlines the rubric for each mental disorder and, you know, what a person needs to be exhibiting to you know, qualify for that diagnosis. But it's a constellation of symptoms, you know, and you may have one, but if you don't have all of them or um, an adequate number of them, you're not a hoarder. Uh, So yeah, I guess all all I'm trying to say is, you know, I think my girlfriend has some perfectionist qualities, but I don't think it inhibits her nearly as much as it does me. But we are both the type of people who it's like, if we have to write an email to somebody, it takes us an hour because we're thinking about, you know, oh, did I word that right? Am I, is my tone coming across right? You know, how could they read into this and misconstrue what I'm saying or, yeah, it's fucking crazy. I know I haven't gotten to this part yet, but my brother says there's like some exercises in this book that this person sort of um, prescribes for people who are trying to combat their own perfectionism. And one of them is firing an, uh, firing an email off with a known mistake in it and just seeing what happens. And of course, nothing. The answer is nothing's going to happen. And you learn to tolerate these imperfections, realizing they can't possibly have the kind of influence in your life that you think they will. But that's hard. You know, it's one thing... I mean, I've said this about therapy. I mean... <laughs> My good friend, I remember years ago, I was talking to them, like a, a good friend of mine about therapy and I was just sort of extolling the virtues of therapy and they said, uh, well, you know, I kind of feel like I'm my own therapist, you know, and it's just, it's fucking laughable. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, God bless him. I'm, I'm not saying there's a bad person or anything, but, um, you know, for people who've gone through the process, whether it's therapy or recovery, you know, you... I think you very quickly realize it's not insight that's the problem. You know, I think any perfectionist knows that they could fire off an email with an error. And on some level, they know it's not going to have any influence. But insight does absolutely nothing to change how you're feeling. You know, the challenge is not just knowing the truth. Like a heroin addict knows that quitting heroin is good for them you know, or that it could save their life or someone who's morbidly obese knows that a change in diet would be good for them. And it's not even like what a good diet looks like is completely foreign to them. It's very intuitive. The truth is usually very intuitive. You want to lose weight? 
move more, eat less junk food. You know, calorie intake versus, I was going to say output, I don't, you know, burning calories, whatever it is. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Heroin, quit it. <laughs> uh, smoking weed, do less of it. I know you sound like a fucking grandpa when you say, like, weed's not good for you, but it's a drug, okay? It's going to have a profound effect on you. People all the time tell me, like, they, they operate better with weed. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> or people say weed has no effect on them. I go, then you wouldn't be smoking it. <laughs> you know? It's okay. I can smoke before work because I don't feel it anymore. Well, then you wouldn't be smoking it. Then if it really had no effect on you, you could just as easily not smoke, right? Please, save it for somebody else. But, um... But, uh... What am I talking about? Oh, insight versus action. Yeah. And God damn it, my brother has fucking gotten in my head all assiduously. Is that the word? Insidious? Insidious? Yeah, his comment about returning to content on the podcast... It makes me self self conscious. I'm I'm sure we've talked about all this before, but yeah, inside. Um, I actually years ago I wrote this lyric. I used to, you know, sometimes I, I wonder why I don't do this anymore. But when I was younger, especially, I would have these notebooks that I would just sort of use like diaries. You know, I have them. I have a huge stack of them. I mean, I, I kept, I've kept all of them. I never look at them because I'm sure I would cringe at whatever I found in there. But you know, you would get these sort of like I don't know poetic little phrases or whatever that would come into your head and. I would just sort of write them and some just stick with you for your whole life. And you just, you always have this sense that on a long enough timeline, they would all find a place in some song because you'll have something that you wrote like 10 years ago that you shouldn't have remembered because you have a whole notebook full of things that you've written down. But for some reason, this seemingly meaningless phrase that you wrote down has always been at the front of your cerebellum. And you know, one day you're working on a song and you look up and you just sort of, it's like a Tetris slot. You just see where where it's it's supposed to fit. And it's not like you were even looking for it. You find it organically. You know, your mind returns to this phrase that just seems to fit perfectly right in this Tetris slot of a lyric or whatever it is. Um, one of them I wrote years ago. And a lot of times it's so weird because, you know, you come up with these things at the time in your life where you feel the most lost, where in hindsight, you feel like I had nothing figured out. You know, I wrote this phrase, you know, insight never led me to action. And for some reason it was, I had this melody. It was like, insight never led me to action, baby. On a way to direction. Yeah, it's weird. Like when you're a songwriter, I think most people understand that like most of your lyrics come like gibberish. You know, sometimes you'll have one phrase like that. Insight never led me to action, baby. And so most of your songwriting time is just spent like, hmm, what words could fit in there and what can I find that might fit there, you know? And so you, it's, dude, it's like, I call them like scat lyrics. Like, you know, jazz scatting. You know, most of songwriting is just, you have these scat lyrics, these sort of gibberish words that you try to, I mean, in a way that sort of shows you what the word should sound like because these sort of inevitable, or I should say these scat lyrics, they feel inevitable. 
Like to me, the best music has a certain inevitable quality. Like some songwriters who say, oh, I write the lyrics first and then I write the music. I guarantee you that's a fucking disaster because you're kind of shoehorning, you know, or people say, I, t- I turn my poetry into music. I think songs need to be songs. Lyrics need to be lyrics written for this song. You know, we have a benefit, like if you're a, f- a fan of classical music or opera, you, there's a benefit to not speaking the language because everything just sounds fine. You have no context for the words. But like I mentioned Arvo Pert in a previous episode. I've been listening to tons of Arvo Pert. And, uh, you know, he uses a lot of like liturgical stuff. So it's a lot of Latin and uh, stuff from the Latin mass and on all that sort of crap. And it sounds great. But in the 90s, he started writing this, these sort of religious you know, pieces in English. And it sounds awful. It sounds ridiculous. You know, it's like opera. When you hear Italian opera, it sounds phenomenal. If you ever hear an American opera, it sounds silly to hear someone speaking English and like singing it like it's an opera. Like when I was visiting my brother, I saw an opera production of, um, I was going to say the wall. Was it the wall? Pink Floyd's the wall. Yeah. I mean, what else could it have been? It couldn't have been dark side of the moon. Yeah, I guess it was like an op. It was an American opera version of The Wall, and it was fucking awful. It was fucking terrible. But um, it was because you hear these lyrics that were written for these specific songs that sound perfectly great in a completely different context, and it sounds awful. So anyway, what the fuck is your boy talking about? Why am I even talking about this? I started talking about insight and action. And now I'm fucking talking about opera and lyrics. Yeah, I don't know. And for some reason, I was using that example. Oh, I see. Yeah, insight never led me to action. Yeah, so I've always had this, I don't know, some song floating around in my mind where that was supposed to go. Um, but I think the emotional core of that was talking about, you know, you write these things at times in your life where you feel like you feel the most lost. You feel the most lost. And yet, you already have the insight that you come around to like 20 years later in therapy. And it feels like a revelation. And then you look back at your notebook and you say, oh, I knew this all along. You know, I, I knew it. I knew the truth of it in my mind. I knew it intellectually. I knew what the truth was. But there is a vast chasm, chasm, rift, divide, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> between insight and action. And the challenge of and why people need therapy and they need these sort of processes to sort of, you know, um, integrate these things into their being is because change is, change is exceedingly difficult. Insight is easy. Insight is phenomenally fucking easy, but taking the insight and turning it into action, that's the challenge. I mean, think about how many people, you know, have, you know, as much as I talk about this creative project that I want to do, that I feel like I can't bring myself to do, you know, I'm not trying to diminish that. That's still on the fucking table. But at the same time, dude, your boy has released tons of music. Your your boy has gone from being on stage as a child to be ter- you know, petrified, stage fright, not performing for years, to doing that again, releasing tons of music on my own that was virtually ignored forever, um, to getting on stage you know, performing for over a thousand, excuse me, God, I'm stifling my burps, getting on stage, performing for over thousands of people, release music on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, I've accomplished something creatively, but how many people do you know never get started? 
You know, you'll have people look you right in the eyes and tell you exactly what they say they want to do with their life. Oh, I want to be a songwriter. Oh, I want to be a performer. Oh, I want to do this. And they never do it. They don't even try and fail. They literally never do it. They go their whole life and never take that first step. They never do the first open mic. I want to be a comedian. I've never gotten on stage. I want to be a songwriter. I have literally never finished a song. Oh, I want to be an author. They can't finish a fucking short story. I want to be a screenwriter. Do they never finish a script? That's the hard part. It's not knowing what you want. It's not even knowing what it takes to be successful. It's tolerating the experience, the gestational period, the tolerating the uncomfortableness. I mean, from the years that I didn't write a song to when I was writing songs all the time, the only change was tolerating the process. You know, when I sat down to write again for the first time and it was excruciating and I literally had to force myself to just, even if nothing came, just stare at a blank page for sometimes hour at a t- hours at a time playing the same shit over and over again. I wish somebody had tapped me on the shoulder and said, get used to this because it will always feel this way. It will always be difficult. And the diff- you know, if what you think is, if you think being productive means this gets more comfortable, then you're fucking mistaken. It is always going to feel this way. And what's going to separate you from being productive and not productive is tolerating this. And there's something about youth that makes that incredibly difficult. And there's something about adulthood that makes that very easy. You know, now I can sit down and do math homework for hours and I don't even think about it. I mean, sure, it's hard to get started, but once I'm in it, it's fine. When I was a kid, I took drum lessons for years. I never practiced. I played along the CDs for hours, which was fun, but I never practiced. And in the last few weeks, I've done more practicing for drumming than I did in years. Combined. And the amount of progress I've made, technically, speed-wise, whatever you want to call it, in the actual craft of drumming, not just being able to play, not just the facility to drum, but you know, developing a strong foundation to actually build on. I've done more in the last couple of weeks than I did in years of drumming. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I don't know what it is. Is it age? For, for many people, for me, it certainly is. There's something about just tolerating the process that's incredibly difficult for people. It's why people don't go to therapy. They know <laughs> they know where they need to be. They know the types of conversations they need to have. They know the issues they need to address, but there's something about that moment. You know, I think it's, you know, if you're incredibly heavy, it's uncomfortable running for the first time and feeling parts of you jiggle that you don't want to have jiggle. You know, and maybe even being at a gym with people who are already incredibly fit and feeling and seeing and knowing, not just you know, we talk a lot about shame and stuff, uh, you know, sure, there's something to that, but a lot of what's standing in people's way is their own sense of shame at being exactly where they're at of the truth. There are some people who are incredibly fit and take incredibly good care of their bodies and have a skill set that is completely foreign to other people who want that. But to get there, you're going to have to tolerate being at a gym or going for a run and your clothes not feeling good 
and just being painfully aware of who you actually are, that scares more, more, that scares people more than anything. That is what keeps people from ever finishing the song. Oh, I want to be a songwriter. They never finish it. It's because when they sit down for that blank page with their guitar in their lap, they face themselves. They face who they really are in that moment. Dude, it's like the never-ending story when Atreyu goes to whatever oracle it is where he goes to the mirror gate. And the dude says, most people see themselves and run away screaming. Most people see themselves and run away screaming. And that is the truth. It's why people don't finish creative work. Because they have to face themselves. It's why people don't go to therapy. To do it well, you have to face yourself. Facing the truth of who you really are scares people more than anything. Most people more than anything. And some people have confidence. But it takes courage to face yourself. Confidence is just believing things are going to go well. You know, and that can be a good thing if, it, if you happen to be right. It can also be your undoing if you happen to be wrong. But courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And for most people, the biggest fear of their life will be facing themselves. <sighs> That's the hard part. And look, I'm not saying I'm a hero, but uh, there, there is a drop of that. When you're drumming, <laughs> when you're drumming and you feel the limits of your ability and you're thinking, damn, I'm not where I want to be. And just tolerating it and trusting the process and working through it. There's a drop of that fear of facing yourself when I'm doing the podcast and I think, damn, this is going awful. I'm stumbling over my words. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. But you push through and you do it anyway. Look, people were coming at the end of an episode. When I literally was walking over here to sit down to record it, I had no fucking idea what we were going to talk about. And I'm not saying this is the best podcast episode you've ever listened to, but guess what? We got another one under the belt. Episode And look, we've done it 22 times now. More than that. I've re-recorded episodes. We have a four-hour episode on tap. Dude, we've done a lot. And are we the Joe Rogan podcast? No. We're at where we're at. And look, I'm not like a Tony Robbins person, but I think he did say something one time that stuck with me, which is, you know, people vastly overestimate what they can accomplish in a year, but they vastly underestimate what they can accomplish in 10. And I think if you and I just keep trusting the process, this could be something. I don't know what it's going to be. But whatever it is going to be demands that we're consistent. It demands that we show up every week and just do the work. You know, and I don't know what that is for you, but if you're waiting for permission to do it, you have mine.
Okay? All right. That's cathartic enough, huh? Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this episode, man. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, do it. Dude, who else gives you this kind of content? Nobody. Subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Connect with me personally at ThisIsMXOXO on Instagram and Twitter. Connect with the show at ThisIsMPod. Um, and look up my artist name, M, the Air Apparent. That's the letter M, the H-E-I-R Apparent on Spotify. And stream the playlist of all my original music from 2019 called Gentleman Caller. Oh, it feels good, folks. You know, when you, when you finally do the thing that you want to do, when you do the thing, you get to sleep just a little bit better that night. So, um, here's to you. I hope you, I hope you chip away at the thing this week and I'll try to do the same. And until we meet again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time and ciao for now. 